Every patient I see for the last 32 years is a puzzle. And every puzzle is different because yes, we're all the same human, but how we deal with pain emotionally, physiologically, and mechanically is radically, radically different. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Inspired. I'm your host, Jonathan Cohen. And if you haven't already, hit that subscribe button so you can keep up with all the latest updates and episodes coming your way. It's been a minute since the last one, but we are back and I couldn't be more excited. On this podcast, we share the stories of successful professionals and leaders in their field. On this show, not only will we explore the journey of accomplished individuals from various fields such as lawyers, doctors, athletes, pilots, executives, entrepreneurs, and coaches, but we also dive into topics and techniques they use to achieve their success. Each episode brings a new perspective and valuable insights for our listeners, so join us as we discover the secrets of success and unlock your own potential. Today we have a very special guest joining us. Dr. Dmitry Polikov. Dmitry holds a Bachelor's of Science and a Doctorate in Physical Therapy and now runs his concierge practice out of New Jersey, Total Physical Therapy. With over 30 years of clinical orthopedic experience, Dmitry has treated amateur, Olympic, and professional athletes from the NCAA, NBA, NHL, to the NFL and MLB. Pretty much every sport out there. Dimitri uses a functional biomechanical model of treatment to assess compensation patterns as a result of movement dysfunction. So what does that mean? It means that we compensate for our poor movement and Dimitri makes it work through this concept of breath work. He focuses on the how and the why of recovery to leave his patients empowered. The topic of this episode, breath work, is something I've been looking forward to discussing for a couple of years now. How breathwork plays a role in our lives from our mood to our behavior to our performance, it's pretty much the greatest physiological hack that we all have access to and in this episode we talk about why. Hopefully you leave this one feeling a bit curious and eager about breathwork and maybe try it out in your own life. I'll link to some resources in the show notes that made a difference in my own practice and hopefully can help you out too. Alright, let's get to it. Please welcome my friend, Dr. Dmitry Polakov to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Inspired. It has been a while. This is the first episode I'm recording since I actually got married, and there's no one I'd rather bring in the new year with than Dr. Dmitry Polakov. How are you today, sir? Fantastic. Thanks for having me, buddy. Been a long time. Planning. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> We've had this one in the making for a while. Dimitri has healed me with his hands and virtually as well. It's actually funny because I've known you for over a decade. And how long is it? 14 years? No, not a decade because I was tre- I used to treat your dad. That's how I met you. And so my daughter was born and she's just there to turn 13. So it's actually been well over 13 years. <laughs> so let's, let, let's call it a decade and a half-ish. <laughs> Through that time, what I've appreciated about your practice is that you have consistently gotten better. And part of that is due to your curiosity, which is obvious, but also due to your continuing education. How we got back in touch after a little bit of a hiatus, I reached out to you because I had some really bad experiences working with physical therapists after I had hurt my back, back squatting in 2020. And it was actually the day after Kobe Bryant died. And then about six months after 
I had that injury where I couldn't sit down in a chair. I was in immense pain. I was just going through it in ways that I was like, is this forever? I was contemplating surgery. There was there was so much going through my mind. And you were in a very different place back then, for sure. A much, much different place. And <laughs> you were in a cave. <laughs> I, I, it's funny because I remember when... I remember when I hurt my shoulder and I had also gone, you know, I tore my labrum and you had warned me, you're like, it's a labral tear, but you know, if you just stay off it and you do some PT, you'll be okay. Obviously I did not listen and I ended up having to get surgery because I had exacerbated it on my own. And I remember thinking if any injury ever occurs again, I'm going to reach out to Dimitri. So six months after that injury, I ended up reaching out to you and within a month and a half, I'm doing things that I never really imagined I'd be able to do again, if at all. And we did it. And we did it virtually during COVID. The whole thing was virtual. That was the best part. And so we're going to talk a lot about that because the main theme about it was the power of the breath. And while there are so many elements to it in terms of mental and physical, there is a spiritual aspect too. Something that you really showed me is that we have the power to heal ourselves. And I'm excited to get your take on it. So let's dive right in. Dimitri, had you stumbled upon this practice of breath work, we'll call right. it? Right. Well, let's call let's step it back a little bit. So, you know, there's this thing that I talk about when I do my seminars is let's take a little quote. We're humans first, we're movers second, and we're specialists third. And what that ba- and again, I didn't I didn't make that up. But basically what it means is that all of us, I don't care if you're Kobe Bryant, if you're LeBron, if you're Eli Manning, or if you're Jonathan Cohen, Esquire. Okay. It doesn't matter. All of you guys breathe this, you guys breathe, you guys bleed the same way, you guys cry the same way, kind of like that Alan Iverson, you know, amazing little interview that he had a long time ago. You know, <laughs> you, you guys, we're all the same. And so that comes first. If you want to do triathlon, if you want to, play pickleball, if you want to play tennis, if you want to run the New York City Marathon. We're not cheetahs, right? Fish are never going to run well. Cheetahs are never going to swim well. So we're humans. We were designed to do certain things well, which is ramble, walk, climb a few things, crawl. We were designed to do things that really most of us, the majority of the day, don't really do. Meaning we don't sit we weren't designed to sit eight hours a day. We weren't designed to run this New York City Marathon. We weren't designed to do those things. So if I look at it from the perspective of how can I move well with respect to how I was designed? And that's really what physical therapy is, right? I take a human who has complaints, whatever they may be, whether it be headaches or an ankle sprain. So, you know, take the two polar opposites. And I say, well, how do, what's the, what's the, you know, the common denominator for both of those humans? Well, they're human. So they're going to have to learn how to breathe properly because that's expansion, compression, that's energy, right? Because you can't, why, why do we breathe? We breathe so we can get oxygen into our tissues and cells. That's energy production. So we all do that the same way. And so ultimately there's the mechanical part of it, right? Like you, we all have ribs and pelvises and femurs and feet and toes and, and muscles. And, the, and again, every human's got the same ones. And so if, if I can get you to move, like a human with the basics, squatting, lunging, pressing, pushing, hinging, then we could actually have a conversation. Now, what do you want to do, right? If we can get that down, 
then we can get you to move better. And then from there, we could specialize, meaning you could do martial arts, you could do a run marathon, you could, you could, you know, you could go ski jump or base jump or be an acrobat or do, you know, parkour, whatever it is, it doesn't matter, but you got to get that process down. So what physical therapists do or what movement, movement dysfunction professionals do, which is what physical therapists are defined as. And an interesting, because most of them don't actually do that. And that's another thing is that we look at movement and we say, Hey, what's going on? Like, why are you in pain? Right. And it's not just, Oh, the shoulder hurts. Let's, let's put a bandaid on it. Right. Let's, let's, let's rub some cream on it. Let's press it. Let's rub it. Let's stretch it. Let's strengthen it. But you're not looking at the why. And, you know, how did I come about all, you know, where did this all come from? Like, why did I choose this? You know, why didn't I not become a, you know, a guy in wall street or, or a, a plump? I got hurt. I got hurt in high school. I was a swimmer and I got hurt. I was a breaststroker. So again, think about the frog kick, right? Using inner thighs. And I got hurt and I pulled my groin and I went to physical therapy because I went to an orthopedist and he said, Hey, get some physical therapy. And I remember not actually getting any better. And the guy has got a nice, you know, he has a nice white lab coat, very professional medical office. Everything was super pro yet. I wasn't improving. And even back then when I was, you know, like an 18 year old kind of idiot, I questioned what he was doing because in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, I'm made up of a bunch of body parts, which is kind of all I knew back then. And my groin hurt. I couldn't kick, but I wasn't like, I wasn't swimming with just my groin. I had arms, I had hands, I had trunk. I was twisting. I was using my head. I was breathing. I was doing all sorts of things. And all this PT was doing was focusing on the muscles that were actually hurt, but nothing else. And even back then I was like, I don't get it. Like there's something missing here. Like if you go to the auto body shop, you're not going to, you know, if somebody says, oh, you're, you know, your, your car's swerving off to the side, they're not going to just fix a tire. They're going to look at the whole thing and try to figure out what's going on. And to me, that was fascinating. And the more time I spend in this profession, the more I realize that there's so many more entry points into how I can help you or whoever else is in front of me. And that's to me is like literally a puzzle. Every patient I see for the last 32 years is a puzzle. And every puzzle is different because yes, we're all the same human, but how we deal with pain emotionally, physiologically, and mechanically is radically, radically different because emotionally, there are no two people that are alike. Physiologically and mechanically, yes, but psychologically and emotionally, you know, that's a whole different world. And we can't take that away from the treatment because like, I'm not going to decapitate someone and then treat them. So what I say, how I say it, you know, what we do, all, so many factors go into it. And to me, I found it really, really, really amazing to see the transformation of my practice when we put in breathwork, right? COVID made it really popular, <laughs> obviously. And that's, you know, that's when we did this whole virtual session because your back went out on you. But ultimately what I realized is the one thing that we all do, again, irrespective of what we're doing is breathing. It's the thing that we do most because if we're not, we're dead, period. And it sounds very stoic, but it's really true. Like, you know, Michael Jordan and me are going to go out on the court. Neither of us are going to do anything the same way. There is nothing about me that is comparable to Michael Jordan except he and I both breathe outside of that. He's, you know, he's going to kick my ass, but 
if I have him hold his breath for six minutes, I'm going to win. So breathing is a thing. It, it's, it sounds simple. It sounds something that's just automatic because it is. We don't think about it. But it will level the playing field. And once we understand that, and, you know, the, the word's getting out there. It's become a, a very, very hot topic. But people don't understand why. Right. They just think, well, the more I breathe, the better it's going to be for me. Or, or if I just breathe with my nose all the time, that'll be better for me. Okay. But we have to understand that we have to, we have, let's unpack it and understand what's the point. Like, why are we doing this? And, you know, that's a bigger conversation that we could have today among other things, but you know, the breath work space is so big and there's so many components to it. Uh, but what I've seen in my practice personally is that when I've put in breath work, as a part of a treatment plan, people just got better faster. We'll talk about that, why, but it's it's simply because it regulates your nervous system. You know, that's it. Regulation, it allows you to pay attention to what you are doing. And we suck at paying attention to what we're doing. We're terrible at it. We're in we're in a pandemic of not paying attention. And what do I what do we do as, as movement therapists? What am I trying to make you do? Aware, I want you to be aware of what you're doing. I want you to be aware of how you are moving. What foot are you standing on? Where's your weight? Are you holding your breath? Are you clenching your teeth? All of those things are hard to pay attention to all day. But if I ask you to pay attention to how you inhale and pay attention to how you exhale, which you're going to do anyway, otherwise we're not talking, that is the entry point. That is movement. You cannot move if you cannot breathe. Hold on, I can't hear you. There's so many directions that I want to take this conversation. <laughs> That's my elevator speech. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's impactful. And you know, as I'll start with you mentioned, we're not supposed to sit for eight hours a day. So in light of that, I'm actually standing. Right. Uh, I have a standing okay. desk at home. I have a standing desk at work. There you go. I think it's so important to Obviously, I think at this point, everybody knows that I believe that movement is the best medicine. You know, we're constantly looking for a drug that can cure. And the truth is, if you look at the benefits of movement, breath work, fivefold, tenfold, twentyfold, yeah. and no, no pharmaceutical can. Well, they just show the same ROI. Yeah. Yeah. They just showed. I mean, again, I don't, I'm not going to, I can't quote the research in particular, but you can Google everything nowadays, but you look at, you know, SSRIs, you know, antidepressants, and you look at exercise and you look at the metadata, you know, pulled out, the results are the same. Exercise is free. <laughs> <laughs> Drugs are not free. Or if you have good insurance, they are free. But the point <laughs> is you're using medication. This is really kind of a big deal. People have this aha moment when we talk about this. <clears throat> We use medication to change how we feel. And again, listen, I'm not going to say medication is bad for everyone and everybody should never take medication. And if we just sit around and breathe, everything goes away. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's a handful. And I'm not saying that's true. But if you're using medication to make yourself feel better, maybe it's necessary. I hear you. But you're using an external locus of control to change an internal state. If you can figure out a way with help, from professionals that know what the hell they're doing to find an internal locus of control. You actually paying attention to what you are doing to change how you feel. That's sustainable. It's free and it's forever as long as you're alive. So, you know, breath work, exercise, 
eating better, sleeping better, doing all those things does have a monumental impact on how you feel. But we got this thing called the frontal lobe and it tells stories and it does not want to do the work. It wants a quick fix. It wants to cede control to something else. And the problem is your body keeps score. It knows that it's not doing the work. Consciously or subconsciously, it knows it's not doing the work. So at the end of the day, you're like, well, I need more of that external locus control to feel better, right? And that dovetails into, again, what we do. Initially, when I started doing what I do now for a living, I did all the work. I was doing all the manual work. I was doing the stretching and the deep tissue work. I was the guy with these hands and people were feeling fantastic. But I realized that the more I did that, the more they were dependent on me. And great. I felt fantastic about myself, right? They need me. I feel wanted. Fantastic. But now I can't get away, right? They need me to feel better. But the whole concept should be me teaching them so they can feel better. And then they could actually work at it and continue to feel better. I want, I mean, it's the cliche of like teach an man to fish or give him a fish. It's that. But yet, as much as people understand that, nobody does it. Well, a lot of people do it more, more than those guys don't. So, you know, ultimately it came down to like, how could I create an internal locus of control for my patients? How could I educate them? And how could I give them the best information possible so they could improve with my assistance initially? But again, little by little, I do less, they do more. And then I walk away and they continued everything on their own because now they're invested in themselves because they put in their own work. All right. You know, listen, this is a ghost for any, for any, for any profession in any field, but from a physical therapy or a movement perspective, we have to understand that what I'm talking about has three pillars, right? It's got the mechanical pillar, meaning physical, the physical pillar, the movement pillar. It's got the physiological pillar. What happens to your internal hormones and, and chemicals and, and blood pressure and, and, and all of those things that create the work. And then what happens to your mental state? All of those three things have to be addressed, not just the movement perspective. And that's where breath work comes in. The breath work takes care of the physiology. And because we change the physiology, the emotional side, the psychological side, the state also changes. It has to, because if I ask anyone to hyperventilate, they're not going to feel relaxed. But if I ask somebody to slowly inhale and slowly exhale, they will feel relaxed. Everyone knows that. Everybody can feel that. So it's very easy to show how changing your physiology can change your emotional state, albeit temporary, until it's not, right? So combining those three, it's kind of fun. There's a lot to do there. So that's kind of the, you know, the, the surface level of breath work and how it can impact all of those things. So as you talk about this, there's so many aspects of it that resonate from both my professional and personal experience. As a former prosecutor, I worked with a lot of victims of domestic violence, victims yeah. of trauma. And, you know, there's, there's this notion that trauma is the inability to be present. It is focusing on what was or what could be, and therefore not what is. You're not where your feet are. And because you're not present and you're constantly thinking about the past, that's where the trauma for not just victims of 
domestic violence, but any type of PTSD actually occurs. Yeah. And what allows people to come back to that home base is something along the lines of a movement practice or a breath practice because lowers the resting heart rate, improves the mood, like you were talking about that physiological to mental state. So when we talk about these practices, how do you walk the line between, you know, woo-woo and science? Fantastic question. Fantastic question. Okay. You said trauma, very powerful world, word, word in a powerful world. What trauma, the definition of trauma, you were right. But again, there you can you could talk about it in different ways. But trauma basically is avoidance of behaviors that don't make you feel well, right? That's basically what trauma is, right? Whether it be child abuse or a car accident or you failing a case and really perseverating on it. You're taking an emotional thing, a weight, whatever experience you've had that makes you not feel happy. And now you're replaying it in your head over and over. That's trauma. That's PTSD, right? You're, you're, you know, you were a soldier in Afghanistan and you, an IUD blew up your Humvee and your brothers and sisters were killed. And now that is replaying in your head and you're avoiding it. Because, well, why would you want to replay it over and over again, right? And so that's trauma. And you take it with you for the rest of your life, unless you can let it go. Easier said than done. But the point is, what trauma does, what, what behaviors that are uncomfortable to you, what they do. And again, you know, that trauma can also be a ankle that won't heal, a back that keeps going out on you, right? And then that starts to define you. Now you're that guy with the bad back. You're that guy with the bad ankle, just like you could be that soldier who should have been in that Humvee instead of his friends, right? So trauma is all of those things. But we need to understand what trauma does to the physiology of the brain. So this is where it gets, you know, I'm going to answer the woo-woo thing, right? So we have this thing in our head called the amygdala. The amygdala is... A nuke, there's two nuclei in your brain. And again, I'm not a neuroscientist here, but the basics are the basics. And what we need to understand is that that amygdala is reptilian in nature, meaning that we've had it for the last, you know, as long as we've been humans. And that thing senses fear, it senses threat. And it's very, very blind to what that threat is. It just senses it's either a threat or not a threat. And anything that is emotionally uh, shocking to you is going to be a threat. It could be you fighting with your wife. It could be PTSD from that Humvee blowing up. It could be keeping, you know, it could be you thinking about the fact that your back keeps on stopping you from not re- being able to run. You're attaching yourself to this thing instead of being authentic, instead of being you. You now become that thing. And that thing is not making you feel well. So that amygdala fires. Now, when what we now know is that that amygdala hijacks your brain basically and forces you to think that you're under significant threat that increases your sympathetic tone fight or flight right everybody knows fight or flight rest and digest sympathetic parasympathetic right sympathetic is like go 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 parasympathetic is like i'm chill i'm gonna relax all right when that amygdala turns on you are on you have to get away and what we also know and this is critical 
When that sympathetic tone goes up, we start to breathe quickly or quicker. We start to, we start to do this. We start to breathe faster. But research just came out actually during COVID that states that when the amygdala turns on, we actually get a reflexive cessation of breathing, meaning that we reflexively actually stop breathing. So think about this classic thing. If somebody becomes, comes, up, comes up behind you and scares you and you go like this, <gasps> what did I just do? I held my breath, right? It's reflexive. Nobody's going to come up behind you, go like this, and you're going to go, <laughs> doesn't happen. <laughs> that would be a horrible, horrible, scary movie, right? It doesn't happen. Why? Because we don't exhale when we get scared. We don't downregulate when we get anxious. We upregulate. We inhale. <gasps> Inhalation is a sympathetic fight or flight activity. Exhalation is a parasympathetic activity. If we inhale and exhale equally, then we vacillate between that and we're balanced. But what we see all the time is everybody comes in stuck on a perpetual inhale. They're up here. They're extended. Their chest is out. Their head is forward. Their pelvis is anteriorly tilted. Their spines are compressed posteriorly. Their groins hurt. Their quads are dominant. Their necks are tight. Their jaws hurt. They get headaches, you know, vestibular issues, on and on and on. But again, when we are experiencing trauma in any way, shape, or form, when we are stressed, our breathing will increase. And if that amygdala fires up enough, our breathing will actually temporarily stop. And then when that breathing temporarily stops, what starts to happen is our carbon dioxide levels go up. So we can talk about briefly about this because. Again, the science is so clear and it's actually basic eighth grade science. That's the cool part. We don't have to go to high school to understand this. All right. Here's the thing. Let's talk about why we breathe, right? And everybody out there, unless they've talked to us, will think that we breathe to get oxygen, right? And it has nothing to do with oxygen. We actually have virtually no sensors in our body that sense levels of oxygen at all. And that's really important to understand. Like, so like if I, if you hold your breath, eventually you're going to kind of either pass out or you're going to have to exhale and start to breathe. But we don't do that to get oxygen. We do that to get rid of carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide is this thing that we exhale, right? And it's been demonized. It's been, it's been basically said that that is like, you know, it's bad. We got to exhale it. Carbon dioxide is bad. Well, it's carbon right? We wouldn't be, there would be no life on this planet if it wasn't for carbon. So carbon dioxide is the thing that we have an obscene amount of chemoreceptors in, in the brainstem, specifically in the descending aorta and the ascending carotid. So these are arteries that supply blood to the body and the brain. That is where those chemoreceptors are. And the big takeaway here is this really simple. Here's the punchline. You cannot use oxygen at all without having carbon dioxide present in high quantity, period. That's it. So if you cannot hold on to carbon dioxide, well, you cannot use oxygen as energy. And now we have a huge problem, right? Because, well, theoretically you need oxygen, right? But oxygen is aerobic respiration. So anybody out there listening who wants to do cardio, right? Why are you doing cardio? To get in shape, right? To have a healthy cardiovascular system, to increase your metabolism, to do all those things that we all know cardiovascular exercise does. 
But what are you doing? You're breathing through it all, right? Your breathing changes. Your breathing increases. You're on the Peloton. You're running. You're doing all the sorts of things that you love. How you breathe dictates how you're using that oxygen. And ironically, what we now know is the majority of the population doing cardiovascular exercise, that's all those things that we love, which is movement-based, are breathing incorrectly. It's funny. I'm just going to stop you for a second. I went for a run this morning in Manhattan mm -hmm. and running through Central Park. I did a nice five miles, all breathing through my nose. Right. And every single run that I do, and I went earlier this week, but before this week, I, I haven't been running the last few months. I'm walking a lot, but not running. And I always pay attention to who has their mouth open and who has it closed. Yeah. And 98% of people that I see run with their mouth open. But that's also because it's very tough to run with your mouth closed unless you're going at a nice pace. Well, so you, have just... to under, you, you have to understand why you're doing it. Well, and that's the thing also is 98% of those yeah. people that you see don't even know that. They don't and even it's know funny. their mouth open. It's also funny because when you prescribed me all of the movement-based practices and breathing practices that you did when I was healing my back, when we were healing my back virtually, and I asked you if I could go for a run after having not run for six months, you were like, yeah, go for 10 minutes, but I only want you to breathe through your nose. I was like, okay. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, and yeah. then, and then the next week it was 15 minutes and then the next week it was 20 minutes and then the next week it was 30 minutes and we started in May. In October, I ran a marathon, the whole thing breathing through my nose. That's in it. Under, in under 340. Yeah, well, you, you would have beaten me. <laughs> so that's that. But honestly, that's large. And, and again, I discovered nasal breathing and breath work, postural restoration through you at the same time that I discovered stoicism. So there was like this. What a beautiful, overlay. what a beautiful little match there, right? It was this insane blend of understanding how to control your emotions, having a physiological lever, if you will, to allow the body to heal and also mentally have this operating system that allowed me to temper my emotions. So physically, I have this lever through my nose. And then mentally, I have this operating system through stoicism that, like you said, this blend all while working at the district attorney's office, working with victims of domestic violence, where it felt like everything was firing on all cylinders. I just had this lens into the world. Yeah. Pardon me. I just had this lens into the world that gave me so much clarity on, you know, yep. what's going on here. And no, no, it's a, uh... sorry. We have dogs. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, what's cool is that, you know, you look at yogis that 5,000 years ago went to the mountaintop to get enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. That's woo woo. But it's not because all they were doing was just getting high. <laughs> not, not through taking, you know, not through taking pot or, or, or using crack cocaine. No, they were breathing. That's what you or ayahuasca or, or whatever, right? Whatever it may be. But those are, well, ayahuasca, any type that's again, we're talking about drugs, right? right? So those are all external, which is great. But again, ayahuasca is not going to fix you until you actually see yourself and take hold of what you can do internally. It's a, it's a gateway. But again, you know, you look at stoicism, you look at yogis from 5,000 years ago, you know, stoicism was created when like back in the, you know, 
Greeks, the Greeks and all yeah. they know, those amazing, what a time to be alive, right? They didn't understand the science behind all of it. They were philosophers and they were just talking about mindset. You know, back then the science wasn't there. Nobody had pulse oximeters and VO2 max machines, right? They didn't have that. They didn't, they, they couldn't take someone's state and match it with science and say, hey, here's why you feel the way you feel. This is why you're mentally clear. This is why you're actually resolving your trauma. Here's the physiology behind it. Now it's not woo-woo anymore, right? And that's where the magic happens because we need to understand something very, very, very simple. Let's talk about really quickly aerobic metabolism versus anaerobic metabolism. And again, I'm not an exercise science guy, right? I'm, I'm a movement guy, but the basics are what they are. Yeah. And simply put, when you are using aerobic metabolism, what does that mean? You're using oxygen, right? Oxygen yields over 30 units of ATP, adenosine triphosphate. Basically, think of them as energy units. Okay, so one molecule of oxygen gives you 30 to 40 energy units of energy to use. Now that's metabolism. Your body has to metabolize all that and you get a lot of power, a lot of energy. Anaerobic metabolism uses carbohydrate, glycogen, sugar as energy. Now, the good news is that is very quick. You have access to that really quickly. And the reason why is because one molecule of carbohydrate, when you're using anaerobic metabolism, yields units of energy. Now, if I'm running a marathon or if I'm working out, what do I want to use? Two units of energy or 35, right? You, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure out which one's better. But the problem with 35 units of energy is that you have to use aerobic metabolism, which means you need oxygen. Now, let's backtrack really quickly. Two steps back. You take a breath in. That oxygen attaches to a red blood cell, travels to your back because you have a back problem. And you assume that that red blood cell will push that oxygen into your tissues and your body goes, wow, look at all this energy. I could heal myself. I could work. I feel great. And that could not be further from the truth. You cannot use oxygen unless carbon, carbon dioxide is present and attaches itself to that red blood cell and pushes the oxygen off. So without carbon dioxide, you cannot use oxygen. Done. That's it. It's a very simple transaction. And that in itself is physiology at, at its basic form. Without that, your physiology is now in timeout. It does not work. And when you cannot use oxygen, what happens? You're not going to die. You're going to switch to anaerobic metabolism because your body needs energy. So now you need carbohydrate. You need sugar. What is this country stuck in an epidemic of? Eating what? Not protein. Nah. <laughs> we're not, we're not obese because we eat too much, too many steaks, right? Processed sugar process sugar. Because if we cannot use aerobic metabolism, man, this is, this is a kind of a big deal now, isn't it? Right. If we can't, we're talking about nutrition now. What? Right. If we can't process oxygen properly because we suck at breathing, then we're going to use carbs internally, whatever we have. And we have, we have, we have a finite amount of carbohydrate in our system. And if we can't use it, we're going to leach nutrients from our bodies. And now we have a craving for chips and cake and cookies, and sugar, and, re and refined sugars, because that gives us more carbohydrate that is easy to use as energy. Now, we never do that because, by the way, we don't move as a society. So then what happens? It gets stored as fat. And now we have, now we have a BMI problem, an obesity epidemic, pandemic, right? So, you know, it keeps going. But the bottom line is, 
If you cannot tolerate higher levels of, car of carbon dioxide, then you cannot use oxygen. I don't care how much, you, how much oxygen you breathe in. You could be on the sidelines and in the NFL game, you could watch it all the time. And somebody has that oxygen thing over their mouth to try to nose to recover from whatever play they were doing. And you'll see this all the time, even at the pro level, they're going to be, they're going to be, they're going to breathe in and they're going to do this. And what are they getting rid of? Carbon dioxide. So all that pure oxygen, it's flammable that goes into their system. They can't use because they just got rid of carbon dioxide. So if you can slow down your breathing, it's work. It takes effort. But if you can create an adaptation to tolerating higher levels of carbon dioxide through figuring out a way, and there's science behind it, there's work on how to modify your breath rate, basically breathe less. If you breathe less, you're breathing out less carbon dioxide. You could hold on to it better. And the more tolerant you become of it, the more oxygen you have access to. And that relationship will never change ever. And so, so nasal breathing, what, what's the difference between nasal breathing and mouth breathing? Nasal breathing is just using two tiny holes. This is a giant hole. So it's like breathing through a coffee straw or breathing through a Slurpee straw. You can exchange way more gas here. This doesn't, but it's hard and people don't want to put in the work, right? So that's where the breathing comes in. Because if we can tolerate higher levels of CO2, we can be more aerobic. And now all the work you do, whether it be on the Peloton or on the elliptical or lifting weights in a gym, running in Central Park, you're using aerobic metabolism. You're creating a much more down-regulated system and you're working within that system. That's sustainable. That's something that we can do until we're, until we're very, very old. But you cannot operate on an anaerobic, highly sympathetic system that's always overdriven. That's called anxiety. And we and the pharmaceutical industry is killing it, killing it with anxiety meds, right? But if we can just figure out a way by working with counselors and psychologists and physical therapists and movement professionals to help understand that there are three very powerful entry points to deal with this, but it's hard work. And you have to find the right people to work with that, that you that you really can gel with. And that's, you know, sometimes you got to get a little lucky to meet those individuals or get referred to those individuals. And sometimes you got to search it out. But if you can do that, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing to see the transformation. And you're a perfect example of it. Thank you. You know, and just one more example of another time that I found nasal breathing to be advantageous. And I've also done my own research. That's, that's another element. You were like the entry point for this entire journey that I've been on when it comes to just optimizing my physical potential. And you gave me a whole new gear that I could operate with and from. So I remember when I was preparing to do the 1000 pushups, we had talked about how that was another example of aerobic capacity, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I never looked at it as something leading up to it, I hadn't looked at it, even with the work that we were doing, I had not looked at it as anything other than a strength kind of challenge an endurance kind of challenge, which it is. But for any type of endurance challenge, like you were saying, and said it to me recently, also, you could be aerobic all day. And it felt like when I was running that marathon, my, my joints were hurting, not 
I wasn't out of breath. I, I felt like I could have run for another 26 miles. I'm there not exaggerating. My brother had to physically stop me. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, that's, a, that's not a bad can't thing. Do this. Yeah, I know. It's not a bad thing. But then with the 1000 pushups in an hour, it was the same type of situation where you warned me. You could get too anaerobic if you're not going to focus on your breath. And now leading up to the next challenge, 1000 pull-ups. Yeah, I'm feeling confident about that, too, because when I guess last week now I did 500 ish. Yeah. And in between sets, I was down regulating through. That's it. Nasal breathing. That's it. Those types of tools. I feel like it's this big life hack that has allowed me to down regulate in real anxious situations, because, again, I will say that during my time at the Bronx. When I was getting anxious before I had to speak in front of a judge or argue against a defense attorney, I was nasal breathing and it was working. It's, it's the best this, hack of all time. It's the best hack of all time. It got rid of, it doesn't get rid of all the butterflies, but it allows you to get into a state of mental control quicker than you otherwise would. Right. And that clarity has been immense in my life in the gym, outside the gym, in my professional career, and in my personal life. So, Because we're all human. And leading into the other points that you addressed, you have over 30 years experience. You mentioned professional athletes. You actually have some experience working with professional athletes across the NBA, MLB, NHL, and Olympic-based athletes. Correct. NCAA athletes as well. Yeah. Yourself or a Division I swimmer. So- why don't you talk to me a bit about what it's like to work with professional athletes? And now, where do you see it kind of going and evolving as word gets out? Well, okay. So professional athletes, what's interesting about professional athletes is, you know, you think of a professional athlete, let's take an NHL player because it's hockey season. You know, they're unicorns. They're all unicorns. They don't exist in the real world. <laughs> There's very few of them, right? And they have God-given talent and they're physical specimens. But again, what's the difference between me and Michael Jordan? A lot, except, <laughs> except he's still going to work on the same exact three pillars that I'm going to work on. Mechanics, physiology, and psychology. Those are the three things. We can't escape it. That's what defines us as human beings, right? Now, a professional athlete is going to have an obscene amount of talent from a movement perspective. That is what allows them to skate and hit and shoot and run and do all those things. That's what a professional athlete is. They also got there by having a superhuman capacity of grit, tenacity, work capacity, obviously, because it doesn't happen by accident. None none of that happens by accident. But here's a big, big relevant factor. I'll take, actually, frankly, take almost all professional athletes. All right. They have some of the highest rates of depression when they stop being professional athletes. Mm And Michael Phelps is a perfect example. Talk about someone that has the most amazing cardiovascular capacity of all time, right? Michael Phelps is the spokesperson for an app that focuses on depression management, all right? So professional athletes all have to breathe. And the problem with professional athletes is that because they're they're unicorns in movement, they are highly, highly, highly programmed, meaning that their patterns are so ingrained. Their capacity to move within their respective sport is so good. And working with professional athletes who have injuries 
is super hard. It's actually a lot easier to work with somebody who's completely, you know, obese, sedentary, and out of shape because they have no patterns. They're a clean slate. Anything I do is going to change that. But professional athletes are, are patterned. They're so good at what they do to create change is actually creating a change in their identity, right? So I have somebody who I'm working with from the NHL who has a knee problem. And now I'm asking them from a rehab environment to start to move a little differently. And it kind of blows their mind because like, wait a second, but you know, I've been doing this for so long and I'm so good at it. You're asking, you're telling me that that's not ideal. And I'm like, well, you got hurt, didn't you? Right. So changing how they move is difficult because they're really good at moving poorly. And it worked for them until it didn't, right? But also, you know, we talk about this all the time with professional athletes. You look, again, you look at the bench in the NBA. You look at the bench in the NHL. Baseball is a little different because there's not a whole lot of movement for the majority of the time when they're on the field. But if you look at NBA, NHL, soccer, you look at hockey, on the bench, after whatever shift they're doing, whose mouth is closed and whose mouth is open? And listen, I'm not like some, you know, Yoda or some kind of, you know, Oracle here. Okay. I'm not giving some, I'm not giving out information that's proprietary. Okay. If those individuals can close their mouth on the bench, they'll recover faster. Now that that's me giving you cliff notes, right? I mean, it's more than that. Sure. But if I see, and again, I'm a Ranger fan, so I'm just going to, I'm going to throw out the New York Rangers. Maybe Artemi Panarin's listening, but that guy was on the bench. And he looks like a panting dog every single time. He never closes his mouth. And he's gassed, right? Like you have a minute and a half shift on the ice and you go from aerobic to anaerobic really, really quickly, right? You're breathing through, you're using oxygen. And eventually the work is so hard that the byproduct of aerobic metabolism is carbon dioxide. And as it builds up, if you can't tolerate it, you have to open your mouth to get rid of it. But as soon as you start to open your mouth and get rid of that carbon dioxide, you are now anaerobic, which is not a sustainable form of energy. You have less of it. So if Artemi Panarin goes through a minute and a half shift and, it, and goes balls to the floor hard and does his job well, and he's an all-star, and gets to the bench and recovers and never closes his mouth, he's going to wind up getting rid of too much CO2. And if he gets rid of too much CO2, he's going to go back out on his next shift and he's going to utilize oxygen for even less. And then he's going to switch over to anaerobic metabolism again. And is he going to get gassed? So working professional athletes and making them understand what you learned with regards to, you know, trying to be more aerobic, doing push-ups or pull-ups or running the New York City Marathon or going for that five-mile jog this morning. If you can stay aerobic for longer by keeping your mouth shut to increase your tolerance to carbon dioxide allows you to breathe less because you are using oxygen. And because of that, you're staying more downregulated. You're staying more focused because by the way, newsflash, you cannot pay attention to your body or whatever is around you unless you're in a more parasympathetic state, right? If you're a sympathetic, if you're fight or flight, if you're go, 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 you become myopic. You stop seeing the periphery and you stop and you start focusing. And the problem with that is it's great for short term, but bad for long term. So, you know, looking at professional athletes, if they can understand how to pay attention by downregulating, by increasing their tolerance to CO2, so they don't have to breathe as much, 
by being by giving them more aerobic capacity well they become just even better and more importantly if they have an injury how could a muscle heal and recover if it doesn't get adequate amounts of oxygen for cellular repair and cellular respiration so you know professional athletes are tough to work with but it's also obviously when they get better it's pretty damn cool because you're seeing them back on you know them doing what they're doing and that that's why they they they've you know they reach out to us and you know we you you know i'm almost like a consultant you know it's not like i i don't work for the devils or the rangers or the giants but once in a while those folks reach out to me through word of mouth saying hey this guy's doing something a little different mm-hmm. right and that different is ironically something that they do anyway right there's nothing different it's something that we all do but there's a certain amount of specificity that you can work with that radically changes what kind of engine you got and how you move. Because if you breathe too much, if you breathe incorrectly, your movement will change. Your rib cage position changes. Your shoulder levels change. Your pelvic position changes. You have less force or the force you have is uneven. All of those things will change. Mechanics will change physiology. Physiology will change psychology. That's just that's the connection, right? You cannot separate them out. And, and again, pro athletes are no different than you and me. They're just incredible world-class movers that have incredible world-class compensations. What do you think is the main barrier to entry to scale this ideology? Obviously, there's a great book out there by James Nestor called Breathe. There's guys like Brian McKenzie, who yeah. you're also a fan of and uh, are in touch with. Huge. What do you think it's going to take to scale this type of knowledge because it's or, or this type of practice, I'll say, because from my perspective, the other aspect, you know, I mentioned the overlap between stoicism and and working with victims of trauma and my own experiences with these types of practices. But the other element that I think is important to mention is that the entire time I was doing this, I was able to keep track of metrics through Whoop that I was using Mm -hmm. at the time. I no longer use it, but at the time, it gave me immense insight into this metric called heart rate variability, which was also addressed in this book. And you mentioned it earlier, the body keeps the score. Mm -hmm. That was also, I found to, you know, they talk a lot about with, with athletes and, you know, it talks a lot about recovery, but no one really talked about it as it, as it pertains to victims of trauma and how their heart va- heart rate variability was extremely low unless they were engaged in certain practices that allowed it to improve and so did their mental space right so yeah that was a very unique blend and i had a really holistic approach an extreme holistic approach that enlightened me i would say mm-hmm. and took me to another tier of understanding psychology physiology and mental ability in mm-hmm. terms of being able to gear up and gear down. But what do you think it's going to take to scale this type of information to the point where everyone's talking about it as the foundation and they're teaching it in schools? Oh, man, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Along with taxes. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> Breathwork and taxes. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, if we could, you know, there's a reason why Norway and Sweden are one of the healthiest populations on earth. They also have the one of the smallest populations on earth, which makes it a lot easier. <laughs> Try to take 380 million Americans who like their uh, 
you know, supersized Big Macs and try to convince them of that. It's pretty tough. <laughs> what is it going to take to scale? I mean, what's interesting is, you know, you look at what COVID did to the mental space in this country. And the mental space in this country was not that good to begin with prior to COVID. But what COVID did was kind of bring to light how bad we really were. Not as people, but how how dysfunctional our mental state is as a as a as a society, as a country. Mm-hmm. Right. And what I mean by that is, you know, look, you know, one of the slides I have I on my seminars, I, I talk about again, authenticity versus attachment. Right. How well can you be quiet by yourself? How well can you do nothing? How good are you at that? And the answer is we're terrible at it as a society. Okay. Nobody can sit around and not look at their phone or not look at their watch or not look at a screen. God forbid you do nothing for 20 minutes and not feel ashamed of how unproductive you are. And that right there is scaling for the mental health space because we are driven to the point where we are, we have no tread left. And that's the problem. So ironically, you know, when I swam back before the internet, <laughs> that's dating myself, right? Back in the, you know, late eighties, early nineties, we swam something along the lines of 10,000 yards a day. Now in swimming terms, that's just a lot of, that's a lot of mileage. That's a lot of swimming. And it's not like it didn't work. We, we you know, world-class swimmers, but you look at the swim, I'm just using swimming as an example. They're swimming about half that now. They're doing less and world records are still falling that it's called evolution, but we are driven to do more, 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 more. The physical therapy space right now is all about, if you look on social media, it's all about scaling and, and expanding and, and, and making more money and, and bringing on more therapists and, and, you know, more, 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 because if we do more, we're more successful. And ironically, I'm about doing less. I'm comfortable doing less. My entire practice is built on doing less. I want to work with one person. I don't want to work with five. And if, if I work with one person for an hour and I see and I see 12 to 15 a day, I'm going to burn myself to the ground. So how do we treat less people? Yes, we might have to charge more, but then we have to bring value to that to that charge. You know, so it's the same concept with scaling this whole breath space or scaling our our mental state. We have to learn how to do less. And we are terrible at coming to grips with that because that means we have to slow down and we have to be present. And it's, I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know if it's scalable because again, you know, you look at social media and our, our brains are doomed to compare ourselves to whatever it is that we're looking at. Oh, I can't believe that this guy is in the Seychelles on this beach. Why am I not there? Why am I so, you know, why am I so unproductive to not make enough money to be on that beach? Like I see on this guy's Instagram post, or how come I'm not running a sub three hour marathon? Why is he better than me? You know, what could I have done better? That's the problem. And that creates trauma because now we're creating a behavior an emotion that is now making us feel bad. And that starts to define us. You're still the same guy, right? But that's the issue. And that's the world that we live in. You know, I think that, you know, I think the social media world is beautiful because it allows us to do exactly what we're doing now. It allows us to exchange ideas and, and 
you know, if I want to find out anything about anything, I could do it instantaneously, which is crazy if you think about it. I could talk to somebody in Guam in 30 seconds flat if I want to. I mean, it's cuckoo. I could do a high definition 4K video with them if I want. But the problem with that also is the flip side. I could also see a million people doing things that are amazing. And then that makes me feel like I underperformed. But before we could have done all of these things, none of it existed. And we were happy with what we had because we should always be happy with what we have. Mm -hmm. There's always, obviously, you know, there's always the flip side to all of it. And so that's the problem with scaling this whole concept of how can we downregulate? How could we pay attention more? How could we be more aerobic? How could we be more efficient? Because we can't separate the mental from the physical from the physiological. And so until we actually do the hard work of, of being able to be okay with who we are first, all the breath work, all the nasal breathing, all the breathing gears and all of those things that we're doing, all the biohacking is still not going to be enough mm-hmm. because we have to ask why. So all those external, all the, you know, the, the you know, I have, I have an iWatch and I look at it all day. But in the background, I understand that before I watches and before whoops, you know what you know what we could have done? We just said, how do I feel? Am I tired? Do I need a whoop or a wash to tell me the fact that I feel like shit in the morning because I drank two bottles of wine and I stayed up late? <laughs> 30 years ago, I woke up and I'm like, that wasn't good. <laughs> Got it. Check. <laughs> but now we have like ridiculous amounts of data on a computer and all these devices that are external that tell us how we feel. Fuck that. How do you feel? That's literally why I got rid of it, by the way. Exactly. And I wanted to tell you that a long time ago, but I wanted you to get there yourself. It was an education. When I look back at it, it was an education. All of it, all of it has serves a purpose. It's not bad, right? Breathing through your mouth is not a bad thing. It's not going to make you a bad person if you breathe with your mouth, Mm -hmm. but understand why you're doing it. Yeah, that's the rub, man. People start to identify as this is bad and this is good. I went to a B'nai Mitzvah last night, Mazel, and I ate a ton of ice cream. That's a lot of sugar. And I danced with bad shoes on and I drank alcohol. I'm not a bad person. Now, I can't do that seven days in a row and expect my HRV to be nice and high. My sleep scores are going to go down. But we have to understand that and be okay with it. And it's so hard because I'm going to scroll and be like, oh, my God, that guy to, went to a better B'nai Mitzvah and he had better shoes on. He had better alcohol. Why is he so much better than me? Why am I such a piece of crap? Why am I not? Why am I not meeting to his standards? And that's the problem with society. We are none of us are comfortable in our own shoes anymore. We always want to do more, 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 more. And the reality is if we actually stop and slow down and take a look around and look at ourselves and pay attention, then we'll understand why we're doing what we're doing. And that's the change we need with regard to scale and allow the system people out there to actually understand this. And, you know, I don't know if it's me going on Good Morning America or, <laughs> or, or, or having pro athletes talk about this. Okay. But needs to, and a lot of athletes are, I mean, Michael Phelps has talked, you know, there's documentary, a phenomenal, you know, if you type in Michael Phelps documentary depression, you know, Google's amazing. It'll figure it out for you. Phenomenal. Because these athletes, these pro athletes, and they're a microcosm of who we are as humans. These athletes, all they do is that sport, specifically Olympic athletes. That defines them. They they have to give up their entire lives 
to be swimmers, to be, to be decathletes, to be gymnasts, whatever it is. And then when those Olympics are over, when they age out, it spits them out. They've given up their entire lives, i.e. identities to become that athlete. And the same thing goes for basketball and hockey and baseball and football and everything else. And when they're done, they have to sit alone in a room and say, who am I? And that is terrifying. And now it's game on. And that's the problem. So you take that athlete and flip that athlete into a mom who's got three kids who has to give up her identity to raise them or the dad who is a prosecutor and all he does is prosecute and it starts to define who he is. And ideally you create, you try your best at separating and starting and, and don't forget who you are. And it's hard. It's hard work because we live in a world where we can't just all go live in the woods and, and, you know, sit around in Lotus and breathe. That's the reality. Stress isn't going away. How we tolerate stress is where the magic is. And it starts with understanding the basics of what actually stress is. And all stress is in all its forms, PTSD, abuse, sport, emotional baggage, fighting with your loved one, death of a loved one, all of it does one thing. It will turn on that amygdala and your sympathetic system skyrockets, your breathing increases. And the question is, will you adapt to that or will you react to that? Reacting to it is what you see every day. Adapting to it is what we want which is mm -hmm. tolerating higher levels of carbon dioxide by being able to slow down and, main, and hold on to it, which allows us to be in a more aerobic state because now we're using oxygen as energy. And because we're doing that and we're tolerating higher levels of CO2, we're able to breathe less because we don't need to breathe more. And by breathing less, we slow down and that's where we want to live. And we need to use anaerobic metabolism. We need to breathe through our mouth. We need to go, go, go. Not all day. It's not sustainable. We need to do that in short bursts and then go back to a down-regulated state. That's sustainable, right? You look at cheetahs, best runners on, on the planet. No one, nothing runs better than a cheetah. How long can a cheetah sprint for? 60 to 90 seconds at best. And that, and that is a story, right? Wild dogs, some of the... I think they're basically, you know, the wild dogs in Africa, they're basically, I think, like the best pack hunters of all time, even better than wolves. Um, they can go for hours. They're very small, but they, 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 they hunt in packs and they wear out their prey. That's sustainable. What cheetahs do, they've adapted to their environment, obviously, and their physiology. They can't run for more than 60 seconds, but they've adapted to it. So for them, it works, right? But we're not cheetahs. We're not wild dogs either, but we have to adapt to our environment. We are awful at it. And so when our physiology changes, because our state changes, we're anxious, we're, 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 we're upset, we become sympathetic, we overbreathe, and it starts to change our mechanics, our chest flare, our necks get tight, our, we clench our teeth, we hold our breath, we brace ourselves too much, and that leads to injury, and that changes our movement patterns. And that's the continuum. You know, how do we scale this? I don't think we're going to scale it until we understand and manage technology better. All right. Brian McKenzie actually wrote a book called Unplugged. It was his first book. And honestly, I haven't read it, but it's a, you know, it was a best, it was a New York Times bestseller called Unplugged and it's self-explanatory in the title, right? How can we 
get rid of devices and pay attention to ourselves more, right? And listen, I have two kids. They're 11 and 13. They can't get off their iPads. They can't get off the PlayStation. We have to monitor their screen time. When you and I were children, we didn't have that, right? I mean, I had a, you know, when I, when I was a kid, everybody says this, like when I was a kid, you know, we went out all day. We never, we said, we said, good morning, mom. And we said, good night, mom. And in between, we never saw each other because I was out there biking and this doing all those things. Obviously it's a very different world society today. And that's never going to change at this point. We're not going to get rid of the internet. Or we're not going to get rid of screens. It's part of who we are. You know, if I get rid of an iPhone, I'm out of business. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Like that's how powerful it is. And all of us are in the same boat. So we have to adapt to the fact that we have this. And if we don't figure it out, we're doomed to repeat it. And the problem is it's only growing. So we have to understand that. And it's hard, man. It's, it's, I think it's the, it's the hardest thing of our generation really to try to see, can we ride this out and, and learn from it? Or is it just going to get worse because screen times are going up and that right there becomes a sympathetic state. We know that, you know, we look, you look, you look at screens and you, and you scroll and you do all those things. And all of a sudden you don't realize you're, you're holding your breath and you're clenching your teeth and your feet are numb and you, but you didn't realize it because you were sitting on your butt for three hours scrolling. And now when you get up, <laughs> I have a deadline. But if you paid attention, you would have probably felt that about two hours ago. And there's your, now I hurt my knee. <laughs> right. So like, there's an example. So I'd love to scale it, but I don't, in my opinion, I think that a lot of people, a lot, you know, if you look at the masses, they don't want to put in the work. So they're going to continue to look for shortcuts. But at the end of the day, you have to put in the work, you have to put in the, the attention. And for that, you have to make time. And until people start to figure out how to make time for themselves, it's, you know, there's going to continue to be external sources of control instead of internal forces, sources of control. And that in mm -hmm. itself is kind of the moral dilemma, I think, of our time. Dimitri, offering up some enlightenment on this <laughs> Sunday morning. I'm invigorated. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your energy. You've done an incredible job of helping so many different people, including myself, and endlessly grateful for the education, mindfulness. Where can everyone find you? Well, this was, this was so good. Thank you for giving me an audience. Uh, you could find me on Instagram. So it, it was going to be, the handle is at TotalPTNJ. That's my business. And personal account is DimitriPT. So D-I-M-I-T-R-Y-P-T. And we have a website, total-pt.com. So I'm in Jersey. Come visit. It's a lot greener than you think. <laughs> Dimitri, thank you so much. And I'll see you soon, man. I appreciate it. Got it. John, thank you so much, buddy. Of course. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave a like to help us reach more listeners. Also, don't be shy to share this podcast with someone you think might enjoy it. All right. That's all for this one. Until next time, stay safe, stay strong, stay mindful.